No telephone to heaven, no voice to God. A waste to try, cut off. No way of reaching out or up. Maybe only one way, not God's way. No telephone to heaven. The motto suited them, their people, the place of their people's labor. So little movement in this place, from this place. Then only back and forth, back and forth, over and again, over and again, for centuries. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsche. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad to have you with us. We are very near the end of our season on Middlemarch. We're within our last three sets of books to do. We're pulling into, right now, the, the, uh, the holiday season. So we're glad you're with us and spending that time with us. We've got a great episode tonight, but first a little bit of business. As always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can drop us a line at The Readers Karamazov at gmail.com. And of course, you can find our pod on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or uh, by downloading from our website, thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. We love you tuning in and we love hearing from you as well. So any questions you have or comments you have on previous episodes, send them in and we'll try to talk about them on air. We always like to do that. Tonight's book is uh, is really exciting. We're So we're going into our final section of the Middlemarch season. We started out thinking about intellectual grandiosity in our section on the key to all mythologies. Then we moved into thinking about relationships in our section on lonely women in your area. And then finally in this last section, it's kind of a grab bag of things, but we're thinking about realism. We've called it beyond realism. Middlemarch, of course, is often considered a a masterpiece of 19th century realist fiction. And so in this section, we're thinking about different texts that are maybe incorporating realism, but also pushing beyond it in some ways. Um, And our first book in this uh, is Carl's pick. It's Michelle Cliff's kind of classic post-colonial novel, No Telephone to Heaven. And uh, in just a minute, I'm going to throw it over to Carl to Tell us why he picked this book, what he thinks about connections back to Middlemarch, maybe, and anything else we need to know about Michelle Cliff. But first, I'm going to give our plot summary. Again, we've picked some kind of difficult books to summarize this season, um, but I'll do my best here. No Telephone to Heaven, which is told in a very kind of elliptical style structurally. It goes back and forth across time and across continents quite a bit. But fundamentally, it's the story of a woman named Claire Savage. She is um, born in Jamaica. Um, She is... A Jamaican who is uh, would be considered uh, black, but is in fact very light-skinned, and so she's able to pass in different societies as white. She and her family move to the United States, to New York City, when she's a teenager. Her father loves it there. He passes as a white man. Her mother, however, cannot handle the stress of kind of abandoning her culture. She goes back to Jamaica, dies pretty quickly after that. 
Claire remains with her father. Claire then eventually goes to Britain to study. She she takes up with a, an American um, former soldier who has also been kind of wounded psychologically by being involved in the Vietnam War. And then she finally makes her way back to Jamaica, and she gets involved through her friend Harry slash Harriet, who is, we would probably could say, transgender these days. The book maybe conceives it a bit slightly differently. It's a little bit older book, but uh, Harriet, eventually just Harriet, is um, involved in some revolutionary activities on the island. She pulls Claire into these activities, and so by the end, Claire has become sort of a revolutionary fighting for the soul of Jamaica. So it's a book that examines certainly race, but also issues of class. Um, the Jamaican society at, at, in the 80s is very class stratified, and so it's exploring those things. It also is incorporating, and I'll let, I'll let Carl talk about this a little bit more, but it's incorporating different modes of writing. So it's, of course, it's a, it's a novel, it's mostly fiction in a sort of identifiable fictional style, but then there's also these sort of rhapsodic movements into poetry in ways that are not easily tied down to the, f- the fictional narrative. So it's, a, it's an experimental book in a lot of ways and a book that's interested in a lot of different ideas. So we're going to try to unpack some of those tonight. For now, I'm going to throw it over to Carl. And he can tell us a little bit more about the book and why he chose it. Carl? Yeah, thanks, Soren. That's a great rundown. As always, you have that hard job of bringing together like 10 different strands of a plot <laughs> for us in one minute there. So yeah, No Telephone to Heaven, I think is kind of Michelle Cliff's most famous book, to me her best book. Very interesting 80s figure um, who has a lot to tell us, to teach us about the intersectionality, a big word nowadays, but biracial, uh, bisexual writer and binational writer, Jamaican and American. What I like about this book and its connection to Middlemarch is a sense of, you know, there's the empire, the British empire, right? I wanted to have one kind of who's writing back against the empire in some way. Uh, We get a sense of England, a very different sense of England, and a very different sense of the rural and the rural aspect of the empire in some way. And this term of Jamaican uh, dialect, ruinate, is the first chapter title, and this idea of the land kind of growing back and creeping back and reclaiming something on a certain kind of property or an older property definition of a place. I think there's kind of some interesting parallels all the way back to to Middlemarch with what's happening there and who's taking the land for whom and for what reason and for what purpose and for what kind of political projects are worthwhile out in the rural areas, right? And so... I think Claire is a really interesting character, and then where this kind of reform becomes revolution at the end is a really interesting theme in the book. I think there's some pretty interesting religious themes. Obviously, it's no telephone to heaven that has various meanings throughout the book. Who can connect and call to kind of the highest authority, political authority, spiritual authority, or mythological authority that kind of, there's this interesting, when uh, this dynamic of what turns Claire into a revolutionary, also kind of turns her into a myth or something, perhaps, at the end. And realism kind of blurs back into myth in some ways. Um, And we've thought about that a little bit in, like, The Mayor of Casterbridge, too. So I just thought there were some really interesting kind of unique connections with what we've been talking about this season. Yeah, that's great, Carl. Thanks. It's surprising, you know, you think about Middlemarch as this sort of uber Victorian 
British novel written, you're right, by people at the center of the empire, and you think, like, okay, what are the connections going to be to a, 20, a late 20th century experimental work written from, you know, the peripheries? But I find myself thinking, oh, yeah, there really are a lot of connections here, and I think you, you brought our attention to some good ones. Another one that I think about is sort of this, emer- we've talked about this quite a bit, but, like, the layering that's happening in terms of history and how that is sort of vibrant here. And there's an interesting contrast because she goes to England and she studies art, like art history, but it's stuff she doesn't really connect with or care about. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like the bad layering of history. And then she's back in Jamaica and it's like the island itself is just coated in these layers of history. Um, It's a Rome again, right? It's it's a Rome again. Yeah, absolutely. So so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there with history as well that, that connects us back to Middlemarch too. But maybe we can start by talking somewhat about form, since we are sort of thinking about this in terms of the realist element and how it kind of pushes against that. There's a couple of interesting formal elements going on here. I mentioned in the summary that structurally speaking, this is a very elliptical book. We start pretty close to the end of the book in terms of the plot with, with at the very beginning of the book, and then we kind of jump back and forth constantly. We're hopping back and forth. And we're doing a little bit of cross-cutting between characters. Claire's the main character. We mostly stay with her. There's another character who ends up being called De Watchman, and he plays a sort of parallel a role to Claire or something like that. He's radicalized maybe in his own ways over the course of the book. Um, and he pops in at various points um, as well to kind of give us a counterbalance to what go- what's going on with Claire. But the um, chronology is never very settled. We're, we're at different points constantly in time. And so there's that element of it. And then there's also this poetic element as well, this lyrical element that seems to be trying to express something beyond what the plot itself can do. And we end in a, in a poetic sort of almost a trance, right, of, of repetition of poetic words and phrases um, at the very end of the book. And so Friedrich, I'm wondering, you know, this is the first time reading this for both of us. What did you make of of some of these structural and um, aesthetic elements going on in the book? I think, you know, they're connected to the point you were making about the layered history of the island that one one line that stuck out to me that was then I'll I'll say what I'll say the line and then I'll, I'll bring up my point. There's a moment when Claire is sort of reciting all of the 128 official categories of race or something that are present in Jamaica. A mestizo is this, a mulatto is this, whatever, all these old terms that we don't really use anymore, right? And they're like, your great-grandparent was black, but all of your other family was white. Your great-grandma was white, everyone else in your family is black, whatever. Uh, but when they get to New York uh, and are enrolling in school, the the instructor, the, the administrator is like, you're, you're either one thing or the other, Right. It's the one-drop American rule. You have to tell us you're black or you're white. And even though her father's passing and she's passing, and they're they're sort of switching uh, as they're traveling, the official administrative structure is saying you're this, right? And that's a big difference. Even though in Jamaica there are still a lot of class problems based on race as well, um, that's a big difference between the two countries. And I feel like formally part of what's going on is that there is that layering that produces diversity and variety that's not then reduced to the narrative that we can follow as one thing like or the genre that we can stick with as one thing we have like that very short chapter when the watchman is brought in by name other than christopher and we also have a chapter two before that magnanimous warrior exclamation point that are sort of these punctuating uh moments of 
poetic dialect chant something in much the same way that it ends and i feel like there's a disruption i mean this is very typical that people people say a lot about disruption and and distortion of form in post-colonial novels but here i feel like it's specifically tied to the storytelling that they're talking about going on in jamaica that's that's done through reggae uh, that's regurgitated from Gone with the Wind or whatever. There's a lot of remixing of existing narrative, and it's not done just as sort of a, a parlor trick or something like that. It's done because it's it's an alternative to the one-way street that Claire is sort of talking about when she reads Dickens and says, oh, I kind of relate to that, or when she reads Jane Eyre and says, oh, I kind of relate to that, and then has to think back and say, actually, maybe I'm more like Bertha Mason. That's an interesting point. I, I like that that final idea that was one of the things that stuck out to me in the book is her intense connection that she mentions to great expectations um, which is really in some ways it's a great book to think about in in connection to this because you can read that it's sort of in some ways you know the Ur buildings Roman or something right a young boy from nowhere kind of rises up in the world and tries to become great and um, fights against class prejudice and so there's that interesting way in which she's really connecting to that character, and then she realizes, actually, the world for me is much more complex than that. I don't have just this one valence of class that I'm sort of thinking about. I have all these, the, the racial elements as well, right? I obviously like being a woman in this sort of man's world. And so there's, there's these different elements that she's thinking through. And then you're right, as she thinks about Jane Eyre, she's also connecting to maybe other characters that you're not supposed to connect to, possibly. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating way to think about it, that she's She's kind of raising these potential categories and then maybe showing that they're not quite adequate to hold her in the same way as you mentioned before. And this is definitely an important point in the book. When she comes to America, she doesn't feel like she can be contained by these racial categories that the Americans have, have, which is either you're black or you're white. She says, like, I'm somewhere along this spectrum of things. But then, of course, she's sort of forced to be fit into them. And so there's an interesting... um, parallel there in terms of what's going on in her own life in terms of trying to break out of these categories and then maybe finding herself contained by them even as she tries to to break out yeah and and it's sort of reflected in her her father seems to kind of assimilate somewhat well into america and kind of appreciate it in certain ways and downplay all of its flaws whereas her mother can't take it and has to leave and they kind of have this awkward tense apart together relationship that ends with her mother dying back in Jamaica right and Claire's very torn about it right and she's you know very bi in many ways she's of two things at once right and so she's metaphorically torn in all kinds of ways throughout the book um, between America and Jamaica um, American and British aspects of oneself right all kinds of different dualities approach her and and tear at her and at at the end too it's like this sort of reform versus revolution or this reclaiming of oneself and then dividing from some past uh, in some kind of violent act or revolutionary act Um, she's an interesting character to me for that reason i think um, more than the common theme in a lot of literature people with parents of two different races feel very torn and they meet tragic ends it's a common kind of trope in american literature but i think claire kind of makes a very more interesting responses to each of these things we see a lot of her thinking through these problems on the page um and as uh, friedrich was saying that is also reflected in like changes in form reflect her sort of 
changes of attitude and demeanor. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point, Carl. It's almost like she's the reverse of that trope because she is essentially one. I mean, her parents are both from the same general racial category, maybe not entirely the same because there's so many of them in Jamaica, but they're roughly the same and they're same social caste and everything. But then she comes to America and it, she feels torn apart because she doesn't fit into any of these things. And her, her father kind of in, in a very darkly funny kind of note running through his story he always introduces himself to peop- to white people in America. He's, he says, like, I'm from Jamaica. My ancestors were, were like plantation owners, right, which is partly true. But he's trying to cover up the fact that he, you know, he would be black in their eyes because he has black um, ancestors. And he, and he then ends up, his second wife is an Italian woman, right, who are the, also these people at the time in, you know, the 50s and 60s who are kind of on the edge of are they white Americans or are they foreigners? What are they? And so... She's showing us in these multiple ways, like there are compromises maybe that you can make to fit in in that situation. And he's very willing to do those. And then her mother can't make those at all. And so she's kind of hides who she is. And then eventually she kind of explodes and has to and goes back to Jamaica. And then Claire is this ambiguous figure who's somewhere in between them. She's sometimes she's like her father and she's navigating and assimilating and hiding sort of. And then other times she's like her mother and really rebels and then eventually maybe she has to make a choice as she comes back to Jamaica what she's going to be and I like that you're pointing us to this division between reform and revolution because I think that you're right that's a key to this book thinking about you know thinking about in Middlemarch um, Dorothea's uncle who's always involved in these reform bill movements and he's he's a sort of political progressive he's always trying to change things for the better but then he can't like come to grips with the, the actual poor people around him. Um, it's an interesting contrast here because I took the the message of the, insofar as this book has a message, right? The message sort of near the end is suggesting that reform is not a thing that is possible. It has to be revolution. Reform will never accomplish the uplifting of the Jamaican people. Only revolution will do that. And maybe revolution can't do it either. Maybe it's hopeless, but like revolution is the thing that will bring us closer to that if it succeeds rather than reform and so it's a, it's a different perspective maybe on things um, in terms of how do you change your society and and break out of these categories yeah and I think um, Michelle Cliff was very sort of key to this idea that there are people for whom certain kinds of contradictions aren't necessarily moral contradictions and so like Claire's parents sort of perfectly dichotomize this like well which one are you going to be like your father or like your mother and I think uh, Michelle Cliff really wants to say there are people there's a right way to embody both and there's a right way to kind of exist in this both neither space um, that isn't just a moral contradiction it's something of what my father is striving for is okay or kind of necessary to kind of make it in life and then there's something that my mother was aspiring for for Claire that is justified and worth kind of fighting for um, and kind of Mm -hmm. always holding out for and it doesn't have to be like the tear that splits you it can be kind of this way to be bound in multiple ways at once I think the book does kind of an interesting job of trying to do that I have a question for you about Michelle Cliff Carl and it's appropriate to be asking Carl bookmarks about this uh, in a book that's about re- revolutionaries, it has sort of a dialectical form, doesn't it? Like it, it is, like you're saying, it's hosting contradictions and it's bringing us in time 
from one place to another and, and kind of revealing the conditions that have led to those events. And I was wondering if, you know, this is her second or like she's written a novel before this, at least right with similar characters mm-hmm. or the same characters in some instances. And I was wondering if she has those political investments in any way as a writer, if she writes about politics as well. I don't know if Michelle Cliff was like an explicit Marxist or not, okay. yeah. um, but I know that she's very much interested in the ways like Gloria Anzaldúa was mm. that existing in a border racially, culturally, sexually is can be productive, can return to a kind of political productivity, right? So I think that mm. Michelle Cliff would be invested in that in a pretty serious way. I know in her in her life she she was and yeah um her novel that comes before this abeng is it involves claire too and there are these it's like more it's like a personal look at claire's life and it is a little bit i don't know it reminds me kind of of like a tony morrison novel there's a lot of trauma there's a lot of history there's a lot of exploration of like what one does with that trauma what it turns into and how that forms characterizes a person but I think that it's like kind of like small p political in the sense of like bringing about a kind of uh, knowledge of a person of an identity rather than like starting from a political category and trying to prove a point. So I'm, I'm interested in this question and thank you for bringing it up, Friedrich, because and maybe, Carl, you can convince me otherwise, because I know you like these elements a little bit more than I do. But one of the things that I did felt like didn't work for me in this book in, in which a lot of it does work and I, I liked a lot of it are these moments where she does sort of turn explicitly political and so like these characters have a conversation about like oh you've got to write, read CLR James like you got to do it right and then and then near the end there's like this long the longest chapter where it's just like these two characters talking one of them's Claire one of them somewhere else and they're just like sort of marching through like it is almost like a catechism i think you said that before we started recording like a catechism of beliefs like here's what do you believe this do you believe this do you believe this you've got to believe this you've got to believe this and so to me it's you know that's fine as far as it goes but then (laughs) and to what extent does that fit into the structure of the novel and i feel like it fits a little uneasily And, and i don't mind a little bit of like didacticism along the edges of, of writing. But there are moments here where it feels a little bit like, okay, you're going to sit down and you're going to listen to me lecture <laughs> you about politics. And, and so those are moments where you, you get taken out of the moment. And honestly, I feel like I got the, the political orientation of this book pretty well from those other moments. And I felt like, sure, did sure. I really need this other stuff in here? But, but I'm interested to hear like what you think, because I know you like those moments a little bit more. Like, what do you think she's doing with those moments? Why does she include them in there kind of explicitly? And, and you know, kind of, it convinced me. Yeah, yeah. So to contradict the point I just made, right, at the end of that, at that scene, it's like, yeah, you have to read Fanon, you have to know Lumumba, you have to know Malcolm X, you have to know about Garvey and, and Marley. Like, these are it's that it is very like marxist in that sense where it's like we have to start by educating the proletariat about their true history and this is kind of what claire finds in the world of you know a failed academic uh, that she kind of is or a person looking for some route through knowledge that will be fulfilling to her and sustaining in a sort of personal and political way because the two cannot be divorced for her and so it is this sense of like 
a proletariat's history or a people's history of Jamaica or of these outposts of empire that need to have some more self-determination for themselves. I would say that like narratively as like an interesting novel, what's running through the catechism is like that scene from like a, like a gangster movie where it's like, all right, are you going to kill them or aren't you going to kill them? I'm giving you the gun. (laughs) Are you, are you going to be the one who kills or are you not going to be the one who kills? And I think in the catechism, there's this interesting back and forth behind the kind of obvious thumpy questions like, do you support this? Do you support that? That's like, here are these people with guns. They want to do a kind of hostile revolutionary act. When is a certain kind of violence justified in the name of revolution? Someone like Hannah Arendt would say, well, it's very tricky. And America got kind of lucky about this. And most people get it wrong. But the, you know, you can't deny if you're an American that there once was a violent revolution that, you know, your country by its existence, you know, required that. And so when do you say it's justified in the present? And when is that rejection of this like life of knowledge and this life of we all need to come together with guns buried so that we can hash out our interesting political and philosophical differences and work it out in kind of a a community of the mind rather than a place where bullets beat ballots. And so there's there's wavering, I think, along those lines in that passage. For me as a reader, it makes it a little more exciting. And it's compounded by like what happens at the end remains a bit ambiguous about it and the final Mm -hmm. chapter film noir has a lot of different meanings one of which being like kind of like literally a black film like a film of blackness where you can't see what's happening you can just hear Mm. which is kind of what the final passage is and so that makes you wonder is that final passage a sort of transcendental like return to myth in some sense that is this kind of er history that claire is becoming or is it like a descent and like a loss of knowledge to the point of like savagery, right? Her name is Savage, Claire Savage. So the book is toying with that. And I think the catechism is ambivalent because the ending of the book is ambivalent, you know? So that makes it a little more interesting to me because whatever the people say on the page, um, it's not as though the author is saying, therefore go out and do this. Everybody (laughs) put down your books and pick up your guns when this book is over. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think so. I mean, it's a book, not a gun. So the tension remains. That's my attempt to convince you. This machine kills fascists. (laughs) There we go. I I wanted to say about the catechism too, that I agree about uh, Carl's point that there's that moment that brings us way back to our first episodes before I even was uh, a participant, the brothers Karmazov, when, She's asking Claire, "Would you kill to do this? Would you protect? Like, would you would you kill to feed a child? What what do you? It's it's about like it kind of starts boiling down to like what is the amount of suffering that you would allow a child to go through before you would pick up the gun before you would do this? And and, and those questions become a little stickier and they're they're interesting and um and they're they're made more complicated in the context of the Claire's story when Claire's revealed to be sterile. Claire has discussions about motherhood with some characters that we can get into but also as as carl was pointing out that catechistic didactic we, we could say maybe part it's sandwiched between another character's sort of prophetic rantings the watchman's uh threats of burning down uh, kingston and then the ending which is the film watch after carl was just talking about when a, a movie production is going on about i think the, what were called the maroons uh, uh 
people mm-hmm. who had escaped from slavery and started their own their own villages or whatever. And I would add to the divide you two have set up of reform and revolution that there's also this problem of representation that's, that recurs and ends the, the book, that there's this film going on in which the Watchman has been cast. He's asked to like howl and he's saying, I can't perform that howl without the dogs all actually coming to me. There's no like performance. That's just who I am. We talked about Dickens a little bit, but like the representations in film and TV keep coming back. And so that idea of revolution, it's exciting and it's something that unites characters across class and race, but it's also, I don't know, it's not resolved happily for me in a way that's just like, oh yeah, this is Marxist. It's sandwiched among all this, like, how is it depicted? Who's telling that story? And there's a theological element too, right? Because you can think, I mean, we keep calling it a catechism and it, it's this, it's also kind of like a telephone call, right? And it's this, they're in this truck that says no telephone to heaven. And it's kind of like on earth, there are no final answers about these things. Like when is it, is it okay to, to kill justly in certain rare circumstances or not? You know, um, that's a weighty question that you can look at from a theological lens as well. And the the end where they're in the trees and there's this African reference to Sessa Bonsum, I think is kind of an interesting way to look at it too. But the book also plays with this theme of like, is this Babylon or is this Eden, you know, and what are we getting back to at the end when again, there's no kind of human language given in this final poetic sequence is that a kind of transcendent language new language that we're getting a sort of pre babbler language mm-hmm. of the you know nature itself or is it like all babel you know like all posts the tower of babel splitting of languages where we can't understand ourselves or anything anymore pure fragments fragments so i like it i like the ending for that that kind of ambivalence too yeah can we press on that that theological point for just a minute because this is one of the interesting things that the book is doing is sort of weaving back and forth between some of the christian elements of the characters right many of them at least their grandmothers or churchgoers right even if they aren't and then and then you have the element of, of rastafarianism which isn't like hugely played up in the book but is certainly there around the edges and then there's also even even beyond that a sort of sort of traditional Jamaican religion that's in the background of, of animism that's there again around the edges of, of the book. And I'm wondering what you think about how these religious elements are are acting together because there's sometimes in which religion seems to be, you know, somewhat problematic, especially the Christian elements, right? They're difficult to access. And it's almost like I'm thinking about maybe like a book we did last season with silence where, um, the, the the prefect says like you can't graft Christianity onto Japan it just won't work and there seems to be some elements of that here like you can't you can't bring Christianity into Jamaica and expect it to actually take root in a meaningful way what you're going to end up with is Christopher who says oh I'm Christ I'm like the Christ bearer here and then that kind of affects his brain and then he ends up going you know going kind of mad is like you know maybe the closest thing we have to a christian character here and then and then you know there's these other characters in the book who seem to have access to a sort of animist religion or a connection to nature in a deeply spiritual sense and so i'm wondering if you think that that is 
as ambiguous as the political elements or is it do you think that Michelle Cliff is making a clearer divide here like okay the, the, the Christian elements are foreign and kind of not good for Jamaica um, these other elements are maybe better or you think it's ambiguous as well that kind of down to the core to me um, the Christopher character is meant to contrast and sort of oppose who Claire might be in the most positive transcendent kind of Christian reading at the end because in that sense Claire would be someone who's heard certain kinds of Jamaican infused Christian religious like stories throughout her life and kind of becomes one in this kind of Christianized Sasabonsum who is kind of above the normal plane of reality in these trees and is kind of a, a defender a kind of holy defender of Jamaica in some way. I think there's some way to kind of read that and bring that out of the novel. And that's meant to oppose a certain version of like Christopher becomes a myth. And he's told in church that he is this kind of like usher in of a kind of era of, you know, revelation, uh, biblical, like end times almost kind of vision. And that sense of like biblical destruction versus biblical creation. I think there's this kind of mirroring going on between them. Again, the, the amb- ambiguity of the end is supposed to, I think both sides are valid players to me. Um, I don't think that it's like one is meant to knock the other out sort of with the haymaker from the beginning. That's really good, Carl. Thanks. I, I think that I find that can a convincing account of what's going on, that there's some again some attempt to balance these different opposites and maybe bring them together but then also to show the limitations of each as they go together you keep taking us back to the ending which i think is a great place to go it's a wonderful ending i think it's one of my favorite parts of the book as you sort of said before there's a there's a film shoot going on in jamaica and um, they've hired christopher to to do these like fully artist effects right on the side. He's up in a tree howling. Um, they're filming some sort of film about this this revolutionary act that's taken place in the past. At the same time, it is, you know, the, the, the chapter's called Film Noir. There are all these sort of references to film noir throughout, and it has that sort of feel of like a hard-boiledness to it. One of the films that's referenced is The African Queen, which is a John Huston film with Humphrey Bogart. And it's not a film noir, but certainly the presence of Bogart and the presence of Houston as director have give it a sort of hard-boiled edge to it right and so there's that there's that element of it in 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 the way that this film shoot is described that sort of suggests okay this is a this is a hardened film a tough film and i guess i want to think about the role that film is playing in this book more broadly speaking and and i think again to take us back to another episode from last season um when we talked about the collector uh, by John Fowles. Friedrich, you brought up some really interesting points from Fowles's critical writing, where he talks about sort of the inadequacies of literature facing up against film, which has made all these things so possible to present, to give images. But I want to kind of play that off against Carl's idea here at the end, which is that there's another way to read this film noir, which is about a film of blackness, which is we're given these oral descriptions of what's going on and we're not really given visual descriptions of what's happening in this final scene. So it's very chaotic. It's hard to tell what's going on. It's ambiguous. And so I think that's a really lovely way to think about 
the way that film might be translated into a book. We, you know, obviously people like to talk about books that get turned into movies, but like this is almost like turning a movie into a book in some ways, and you're necessarily limited in that way, but then that limitation is in fact itself a sort of freedom in terms of interpretation. And I want to just connect this back to the other main reference uh, to film in the book, which is a repeated reference to Gone with the Wind, which is great. Again, a sort of darkly comic moment where all these Jamaicans are coming together. It's like an institution that once a year they get together and watch Gone with the Wind, which, of course, by reputation, certainly um, is sort of this towering monument to American racism and slavery, right? <laughs> and and so these Jamaicans are kind of coming together oh, and yeah. they love it. They go nuts over it, right? They think it's amazing. And this this movie, and so there's a sense in which she's sort of pointing us to another way to another way to interpret film, which is to take it and then like almost misinterpret it and and bring it into your own life in a way that is way beyond what the the, the confines of the text would suggest is possible. So I'm wondering what you all think about the the moviness of this book, even the opening scene, um, which Friedrich you brought us to briefly, where they're all on this bus and you don't know what's going on, and you're like, what in the world is this? Is very cinematic in some ways. So I'm wondering what you all think about the cinematic edges of this book. I mean, yeah, the opening scene is what I, I had in mind too. It contrasted with the ending. That the opening, although we don't know who anyone is, we don't know anything about Claire yet. Obviously, we've just begun reading, and we don't know the purpose of this guerrilla army faction with the slogan no telephone to heaven painted on the side of the of the bus where it's going we have no idea what they're doing it's described so yeah like you said it's cinematic it's physical it's real it's realistic and we know what it looks like if we don't know what it's doing by the end of the novel we've learned as much as we can about the characters as much as michelle cliffs wants to tell us but it doesn't end with, even though we're in the, on the film shoot, it doesn't end with like clarity of sight and what's happening. It ends with, as Carl's brought us to, um, this slip from like French to Creole to English to, to noise. And she says in, that, in the midst of that, she remembered language then, stylized big space, it was gone. And then the noises and the chant or whatever that is, that there's sort of a, a loss of that clarity and a dive into the world of just the book or not even the book, but just noise. But like, because you were talking about gone with the wind recurring again and again, television becomes important in New York also. And I, I, I just, this passage stuck out to me when you were mentioning that, that when Claire's watching television in New York, she says that it was like magic. It was an ability to conjure images by a switch and to change them as she wished. And it was not like in Jamaica, I'm, I'm now quoting, where all man-made images were channeled into the cinemas whose programs changed once a week, and over these selections there was no control. The island took what it was sent, not so different from the little black box catching the waves in the Brooklyn apartment. And television, I mean, this would be very postmodern in addition to <laughs> a post-colonial novel, but like television as an alternative model to the film is interesting. It's something like that allows you to just move and move and move at any, like, committed cultural critic would say, actually, there's a lot of value in, in television. We can extract a lot of information about a culture from it. And there's something something to that there. I don't know if, if that's sparking any, anything in your brains. Yeah, I think I like you bringing us to the television thing too. And I think in the book, Alan Moore has this quote, I forget exactly what it is, but it's something like, you know, magic is a very serious thing, right? Mm. And I think the book sort of epistemologically takes television as kind of a rival magic to this kind of like Jamaican magic that Claire's interested in, right? And so 
the mythos that Claire and the revolutionaries want to bring about is this kind of Gil Scott Heron, the revolution will not be televised magic. And that's why there's this kind of, and I I agree with Soren that maybe we can kind of fault the novel for having certain moments of like clearly didactic senses of characters or something. And right before the the final scene, there are these like two American movie producers who are just like huge schmucks and like total jerks, like ordering drinks and like mad that they're being treated like Americans, you know, the ultimate sort of postmodern well, ugly This would be American. as good as the South of France if you could just get rid of all these black people, they basically yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're awful, and the, and the book treats them as kind of like trash characters, right? They're the people making this movie, and they're just extremely tokenizing Christopher into the Watchmen because there's like an urban legend that's surrounded how he yells and how impressive he is just like sonically to like the passerby or something and they they need this cute local culture moment in their movie to make it authentic you know and the book is really taking a huge number two on that kind of thing that people do in television (laughs) and the book is really frowning on people who do things like that right and the way that television makes a kind of um, what we could call like cheap magic of that or cheap spectacle of it right it turns kind of an authentic myth or magic into spectacle and the goal is to keep a certain kind of magic um, sort of mythical in that positive sense of myth where it's something that people have positive dreams about and aspire toward and this is kind of a point i wanted to bring up before too with the the theological lens another way to kind of think about claire as against christopher here is like a garvey type figure right where garvey has certain religious aspects that are given to him more so than what he espoused right but he is this kind of like um in the in the rastafarian movement and in christianity and in the nation of islam people have thought of him as this kind of like seer or prophet mm-hmm. or john the baptist figure right which has who has a different positive vision of the future than the kind of like apocalyptic vision of christopher right so i think um, that was something i was trying to draw together before too yeah that's great carl i i think one thing that you really clarified for me in thinking about this sort of transformation or the cheap magic that takes place is that one of the things that's being criticized as well is that this reduction to a single trait or or characteristic that sort of happens with like legends. I like I like the, the term you use of an urban legend. Christopher is this urban legend. He's the watchman. He's always howling. Right. And like, that's what gets, makes it onto screen is the howling. And these, you know, these schmucky producers have no idea that like, this is a man who has killed a bunch of people out of his own Mm -hmm. sort of personal pain, escaped capture, and then like, he's gone to live on the streets for the next 20 years. And it's like this, you're actually missing what the good part of the legend is, which is this whole story here that's very rich and and troubling. And what, what you got is a howl. Right. Um, and so you end up with this sort of sanitized version of legend or myth that's completely missing the underlying significance of it. And that seems to be that might be something of what's going on in, in this sort of critical view of 
other media and television and film, even though they have their uses. I, I would agree with that in the book. There's also this sense in which they can only capture this almost one dimensional view of people or of stories. They can only do this one particular thing. And even the, um, again, in sort of, she's, she's very good at producing these very darkly comic moments when the producers are talking with each other, they're like, why are we even here doing this movie about this like historical moment that no one cares about? And they're like, oh, well, the production company thought it would, they could drum up some goodwill by doing this like historical fiction about this slave revolt. Um, and so it's like this dark moment of, it's very, I think very funny, but also very dark, where it's the suggestion that even the motives behind the making of the film are like, okay, we're going to do this one thing so then, then we can get back to making some good money. And it's like cheap to make a film here, so we're not really losing anything by doing it, which is kind of how it's a, it's, a, it's a good look into actually quite frequently how film studios work, right? You have like your big money makers, and then you have these other films that you make to kind of keep your prestige up, and you're, you don't really care about those because they're not making you any money, but you got to kind of make them to, to, to keep up with the Joneses. So that's kind of what's going on here. It's like a humanitarian move to make this movie about this slave revolt. Everybody will love us and think we're great. Meanwhile, it costs very little to make this film, and we're going to make all of our money in this other area. So I think that's an interesting way to think about the condensation of story and what gets lost when you try to turn something that's rich and complex into something that can fit onto a screen. Oh, I like the point about Claire's mom in the chapter on the dissolution of Mrs. White. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a cool, interesting metaphor and an interesting sort of political comment on sort of who can resist and win. So Claire's mom works in like a laundry in, in New York and they create this character called Mrs. White. And then when Claire's mom, Kitty just can't take it anymore. She turns Mrs. White black and like colors her in and makes like statements that would be like it's all this there's interesting layers going on where it's what the mrs white if she actually was representative of the workers who work at this place looked like and thought like what she would actually look like and what she would actually say and it's a sense of like would you if you were the people using that service buy it if you were forced to look at sort of the reality of it uh, which we can extrapolate, you know, and say, like, if uh, there's something that goes on in capitalism all the time where, like, when you open a new, like, MacBook packaging, it's, like, this most futuristic, vacuum-packed, flush thing that's so sort of perfectly pristine that you feel giddy just opening the box, right? But imagine if, like, the, you know, for lack of a better word, like, like slaves making this... Um, you know, wrote something to you about how they're being treated making this product. How would you feel? Not very good about yourself. And that that trick that people need to buy something and forget that is just thrown to the fore. And for Kitty, for Claire's mom, that's the price of entering America, which is pretty heartbreaking. And it kind of leads to her going home and sort of dying in this sadness. And this really sticks with Claire. I thought that was just kind of a great metaphor in the book. And that's another instance, Carl, of that flattening that takes place. Like Mrs. White, this this mythical creature, this wonderful woman who does your laundry for you. She's so wonderful. 
She's everything, right? And she leaves these encouraging notes to you to come back, right? You're so wonderful. Come back for us. Kitty kind of turns that on its head by, by beginning to slip in these like sort of moral hygiene in with the, 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 the laundry hygiene that's going on. She's like saying, like, approve your life, be kind, don't be awful, like fight racism, all those things. She's like slipping those, those things in, trying to give a realness to the character. And you're, you're right, absolutely right. It's like, what, what if your laundry worker could write back to you and send you a message? It's exactly what's going on. And, and of course, that doesn't fly. And then in this sort of final irony, she doesn't get fired at first. The, the guy mm-hmm. fires the other two workers because they're more noticeably, they're like darker skinned than she is. And he, he thinks, oh, she, she would have never done this. It must be them. And, and there's this, again, it's pointing us to this idea of like flattening. What happens when you engage in a, ser- in a service under capitalism? You're absolutely right. It's like everything has been done to erase the production that's gone into that. And so what you're left with is a flattened image of this like smiling woman who wants to do your laundry for you instead of like, okay, these are these workers who are working in bad conditions way too long and they, they don't have a voice in what they give back to you. And so you're left with the, this mythical spokesperson. Yeah, yeah, I love that it's like a class and a race kind of uprising. And Cliff is really good at making those two things intersect for us. And it's it's sad because it's like to have that moment of resistance as a cost you know and sometimes it's even a privilege to to have that somewhat symbolic resistance and so pushing it beyond the symbolic is something that the book is really interested in and and we we end on that note too and just to go back to the 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 ending one more time you kind of get claire's mom kitty's name in this ending too with the the language and then it says kitty woo kitty woo kitty woo which could be read in a lot of ways. And then the part that Friedrich read, you know, she remembered language then, it was gone. And then later it's almost like cut, katu, katu, cut, katu, katu. Maybe that's an echo of Kitty too, at the very end, past language or something. So when is symbolic resistance something that can be pushed past that symbolism and was it in this instance of turning mrs white black the book leaves you with a lot to think about on that end yeah those those messages too tucked away uh anti-capitalist pro marcus garvey messages as well as the ending in some ways sort of remind me of the title too and the bus no telephone to heaven that soren you were sort of summarizing some of the main thematic concerns if you don't have a voice if you're in a worker under cap, you know, as most of us are, worker uh, in a capitalist society, or you're a, a black person in a predominantly white world uh, of capitalism. Then how do you telephone anyone, right? And that those messages are an attempt to reach out, but also I feel like that ending is like it's not the telephone line to heaven, but that it's some other mode of communication. It's a reaching out, and those are kind of throughout the novel. In addition to those media representations, there are the letters that Harriet's sending, and there are attempts to communicate that are thwarted. And so maybe the, you know, that's a theological question, but like, just as a, a stripped down metaphor, like who, who gets to talk and who doesn't is a novel that's sort of pursuing those broken lines of communication. And there's a breakdown of language itself by, by the end, obviously, right? Um, but she's also interested in, I was kind of fascinated, she includes, sort of helpfully for American readers, certainly, like a, um, 
a, a glossary at the end right. of, yeah. of J- Jamaican terms. And and one of the first ones that caught my attention, it's on the first page of the glossary, is this word bakra, which is white, white identified. And she goes into the etymology here. She says, probably from the West African mbakara, he who surrounds or governs. Some Jamaicans believe the word derives from back raw, the condition of a slave's back after whipping. And she that those that is a word back raw that comes in at the very end in this sort of um, poetic expression. Whip 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 back raw back raw back raw back raw. And so she's sort of showing us even language itself at the level of the word. There's a breakdown that happens, right? A a, a sort of and, and it doesn't have to be. A breakdown in a bad sense it might be a breakdown in a in a in a productive mm. sense right and sometimes these words that like change meaning and a meaning is distorted can have some sort of positive um new valence to them and that's i think you're it's kind of what you're bringing up is like there's a problem of communication throughout this book no telephone to heaven that the line is being interrupted but maybe in the midst of that there's a possibility that there's another message that will get through as well oh yeah and i i think you know the final sentence day broke gives you that some full breaking is happening and i think there is totally a positive optimistic way to read the book similar to madame bovary you know i don't read the this book as like deeply pessimistic like some people might in this especially in the sense too that like with these breakdowns with this loss of a telephone, a direct line or a direct line of communication, fragmentation and breaking down of language. It's like the ruin it of the land at the beginning that allows Claire to kind of repurpose it, ruin it landscapes and a certain fragmentation is necessary for repurposing. And that's part of what the book is really interested in, theological and political repurposing, right? Now that, now that we've arrived back where we started, maybe we can repurpose that thought as a, as a way to end the episode. Um, I think it's a good place to stop for now. Uh, thank you all f- for joining us in this episode. Um, I think we, we've gotten to some of the good, deep richness of this book. You can uh, join us next time. We're going to push forward in, in our section on realism and beyond. Uh, this is my, my final pick of the season. Uh, it's kind of a little bit different. We're doing going to do two different short stories by the wonderful... Argentinian short story writer Jorge Luis Borges, uh, who's unlike anybody else in the world as a, as a writer. And I, I've picked two of my favorite stories of his that I think go well thematically with Middlemarch um, and also with thinking about, I mean, what exactly is realism? This this might break our brains as we try to think about in what sense these are realist texts. The, the two short stories, one is called um, uh, The Library of Babel, appropriately enough, and then the other is called Pierre Menard, the author of The Quixote. And you can find both of them. I have them both in this edition of his short stories called Ficciones, which has been translated uh, into English. There are other places to find them. Um, They might be pretty easy to find online uh, as well. So if you want to read those, it's a little bit less of a time commitment maybe um, than than a lot of our other episodes. Um, So we'd encourage you to read along, read beforehand maybe this time. Um, Although they're short, but they are indeed mind-bending, so take some time to, to decompress after you read them. Uh, we'll be back next time talking about that in a couple of weeks. Until then, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out.
after Derek and I got married, one night, this other Derek appears in our bed. The real Derek is lying down next to me. Other Derek sits right up out of it. It startled me. I knew that was not Derek. And so I asked this critter, who are you? Because he clearly wanted to have sexual relations. And I said, he said, come on, I'm your husband. I said, who are you? And he had the nerve to claim to be Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Well, other Derek seriously wanted to invite me to use my free will to do something that was going to pull me away from God. So this last time, I knew he was really desperate. And I asked him again, who are you? He told me the same answer, and I said, I'm not going with you. This was an internal dialogue. Finally, I said, I've had enough in my mind. I reached up. I grabbed his face, and I said, you are a liar, and Jesus is real. And I pulled that face off, and beneath it was a reptile. And he had little creatures with him this time. He brought these little halfling creatures, and they looked like, I don't know, gargoyles. They were very reptilian as well. So beneath that face of Derek was a reptilian serpentine creature, probably similar to what was visiting the Anasazi. Wow. Well, the Bible says... 